This episode of Backtalk is sponsored by Oregon State University. Earn your German degree online. Explore the German language through an interactive experience online, featuring language proficiency, culture, and literature history, and more. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves. Make the world better. Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash German. Talk, where two feminist folks talk about this week in pop culture. I'm Amy Lamb, contributing editor at Bitch Media, and I'm here with... Hey, I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor at Bitch. So each week we start our show with sharing um, one of our favorite pop culture moments, and uh, Sarah, I'm like super interested in what your favorite pop culture <laughs> moment is this week. <laughs> uh, I'm really excited to talk about it. It's really fun. It mm-hmm. is a song called Soy Yo. Uh, and it's by the band Bomba Asterio. And this song is, the video just came out last week. Uh, the song is a little bit older than that, but the video just came out. And it's a super fun video of like this young Latina girl. Um, she gets her hair done in the beginning of the video. And then she just like struts her stuff down the street and does these awesome dance moves and the whole idea for the video is just being yourself and I know that's like I know that's like the cheesiest thing possible it's like be yourself kids (laughs) but the way it's done in this video is like genuinely awesome and heartwarming and sweet and I can't get that song out of my head so I think that's a great moment. Yeah and and the little girl in that video is so good she's just like breaking down all the moves and like challenging um like anybody who stands in her way and then she's just such a good little like adorable dancer and I think the best part for me about watching that video was that like I went to school with like little girls like her you know mm-hmm. like there was a one specific um classmate that I had that looks just like her and I was just like oh my god it's her and I'm not gonna say anything I know she doesn't listen but I definitely was like I was in fifth grade with you <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that that video, I think that that song in the video could seem a little cheesy, like, oh, just be in the, believe in the power of yourself. But the girl in the video is so dynamic and so badass that it comes off as like genuinely uh, amazing instead of cheesy. Yeah, it was super adorable. Okay, so what's, um, what's your favorite moment in pop culture this week? So uh, the Emmys was this over this weekend, but I didn't get a chance to watch it because I don't have my TV hooked up to an antenna. But um, because you just some... moved to Mississippi and you're in the yes. you're in the wilds of academia now, <laughs> you're too busy writing like nonlinear fiction narratives to hook up a TV. Uh, no, it's because I think I live near like some kind of weird thing where it's messing up the reception. That's really why. Because oh, I tried. Okay. I bought an antenna and didn't work. <laughs> But thanks for trying to make it sound like I'm better than TV. Um, but no, and I missed it. But I heard that there were like some really great wins, like um, for queer white women, like um, Jill Soloway and Sarah Paulson, who won for her role as Marsha Clark in the O.J. Simpson versus the People miniseries on FX. But um, one of my favorite wins was um, 
Aziz Ansari's show, Master of None, won for Best Comedy. And I saw a clip of um, when him and the other co-writer, Ellen Yang, went up to give, like, their acceptance speech. Um, Ellen Yang, made, like, he's, he framed this thing in a really interesting way and I actually want to play a clip of uh, a part of his speech. Let's hear it. Um, there's 17 million Asian Americans in this country and there's 17 million Italian Americans. They have The Godfather, Goodfellas, Rocky, The Sopranos. We got Long Duck Dog, so we got a long way to go. But the thing about, like, at the end of, at the end of that speech, he says that, like, you know, Asian parents, like, um, do us a favor and give your kids cameras instead of violins and we would all be good, <laughs> right? But, but then that kind of, um, so I, I'm really glad that they won and I'm really glad he got to go up there and make that speech. But that kind of, um, like, reinforces... Uh, like this model minority myth that yeah, like yeah yeah that we're all yeah. a bunch of like immigrants who came over here and um and we all play violin and piano and we all excel in it like a lot of us didn't a lot of us came from like refugee situations where we're completely working class my, my family didn't have any money for any extracurricular activities and like i think s- framing something like that like um makes it seem as though there aren't existing Asian artists who are trying to do this work. And it's really about like big studios and like the money that goes behind the machines that fund shows or uh, films that don't want to invest in Asian stories. So I'm super happy that Master of None won, but like, let's chill it on this like model minority myth shit. And let's like, let's actually call out the structures that don't want to produce or like, or aren't putting money behind our projects. Okay, the first topic we're talking about on our show today is the Standing Rock protest uh, in North Dakota and media coverage of the whole movement that's going on there. Uh, So if you haven't been following the protest, it hasn't gotten as much coverage as I personally think it should. It's, in my opinion, the most inspiring and and compelling thing happening in American politics right now. And it's kind of getting left off the front page in favor of Hillary Clinton having pneumonia and Trump saying his next horrible thing of the day. So what's going on right now is the Standing Rock Sioux are protesting the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. It's a pipeline that uh, is proposed to be built to uh, bring a bunch of oil across the the land. And it's right near uh, the reservation of the Standing Rock Sioux. And they are worried that a leak from the oil will contaminate the water supply, will contaminate the water around there. And with oil pipelines, it's not really a question of if a leak is going to happen, but when and how bad it's going to be. So representatives of over 100 indigenous groups have gathered at um, the Sacred Stone Camp in on the Standing Rock Sioux's land in North Dakota. And they're protesting the oil pipeline and they're saying that they are they really see themselves as water protectors, as not necessarily protesters or uh, activists out there in the street, but as protectors of the earth. And what they're calling out is the environmental racism that has been part of the history of uh, this land and the treatment of the native people who are living there. So that's the background on this. And there was a really big uh, decision two weeks ago. Sorry, there was a really big, big no, that was last week. There was a really big decision about two weeks ago now uh, in a really unprecedented move, actually. Um, the federal government said that they were going to stop construction on the pipeline because of this protest and listen more to the concerns that the Standing Rock Sioux have and try and decide what to do in the future based on uh, talking with the indigenous leaders of this movement. So we had a writer who was at the Sacred Stone camp who traveled there to talk to the indigenous leaders of this movement. Her name is Vivian Underhill. And I gave her a call up to talk about her take on 
the media coverage of uh, of this protest. I asked Vivian about what was missing from the media coverage around Standing Rock and what she really wanted to add to with her work as a reporter. Like, what was she worried about in writing about the protest and what points did she really want to hit? From my perspective, I noticed a lot of more mainstream media outlets and networks were characterizing it as this kind of this isolated event, um, not really going a whole lot into the context around it. So Vivian noticed that on the website uh, for the Standing Rock Sioux and on their statements to the press, uh, the Standing Rock Sioux had worked really hard to connect this protest to the history and the context behind it. The big issues of environmental racism and colonialism and legal land appropriation that the Native groups have faced in North America for generations. And Vivian wanted to make sure that her articles tied into that history and amplified the voices of the Indigenous people who are leading this. I mean, the land across which the pipeline is going right now is, um, by by some people's accounting, it is uh, federal land and it's managed by the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, but that particular stretch of land was actually illegally appropriated in 1958. Uh, they were trying to build a series of five dams, the nearest one being Lake Oahe. Um, but that one, that was actually only the most recent example of land stealing, basically. Um, treaties with the Sioux in that area have been broken numerous times before that, too. I think it has a lot to say about who has moral authority here, regardless of what the law says. I also asked Vivian what it was like to actually be at the protest, like how was the feeling and the energy different than what she'd read about in the main site of the Sacred Stone camp? And so you crest this hill and all of a sudden you see thousands, like literally thousands of tents, teepees, RVs, um, and like, and so many people and cars. Um, and so you drive in, there's this incredible entranceway with hundreds of different flags that represent the different uh, tribal nations that have come to stand in solidarity with Standing Rock. So it's this really, really impressive entranceway. And then being in the camp itself, for me, it just, it felt like such an honor to be there for me personally. I think people had told me about this, but I wasn't really prepared for it. There is a real sense of uh, community and family um, People have come in family units, also like larger social units, um, and it feels very, very peaceful, very cooperative. There's a lot, it feels really rooted in song and prayer and um, just this sense of togetherness that, uh, at least for me, like in my personal life, feels very rare and a really wonderful thing to be a part of. When many media outlets write about this story, not all but many, they characterize them as protesters and often as violent protesters. And the people there are very clear that they're not protesting, they're protecting, they're water protectors. And that really they're doing what they have to do to protect their water and their livelihood. One of the things that I really appreciated about Vivian's reporting is because as a non-Native person, um, you know, going to a situation like this, like there, there can be... It can be sticky in how you report and write about the situation, but like when I was reading Vivian's piece, I felt like um, there's a lot of space to give like 
have people speak for themselves. A lot of quotations that we can hear direct quotes from the people who are there and how they feel. Um, and there's that piece. And then there's also the piece where um, there's a lot of highlighting of um, like intersectional activism. Like um, there are um, two-spirited folks or uh, queer Native women who are saying like, like this work doing this protest at Standing Rock uh, is, is in direct correlation with my identity as a queer Native person. And that's like a, a, a sort of a perspective and um, uh, an aspect of, of this of these protests and the, these activists that are there that like I haven't seen reported on anywhere else. So that was a really like I think special and important thing to highlight that isn't being spoken about, and I really appreciate that it was in the piece. Also, I should note that Vivian is uh, she's a scientist and she's in a feminist science studies graduate program at University of California Santa Cruz, and I was like, what? <laughs> there's a feminist there's a feminist science graduate program and yeah and they study issues like this one where uh issues of uh land rights and water rights and environmentalism really intersect with uh human rights and civil rights and this happens all the time in our culture i mean we've seen this We've seen this in Flint, you know we see this around the drought in California, and it's often not addressed as like part of a larger system it's just seen as like oh like the water's bad in flint but people don't connect it to like the history there and the racial dynamics that are going on and same thing here with this protest it can be seen as like out of the blue it's just about this one pipeline but really when she went in there and talked to people they were like no 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 no, no. it's not out of the blue it's very very much about our legacy and the the history of broken treaties uh, with Native people in the United States and the history of being pushed off our pushed off the land and having the land contaminated by uh, profit-driven industries. That's yeah. what this is about. Yeah, and um, and highlighting that like this is just another another event in a long history of environmental racism where like um, communities of color disproportionately um, being impacted by terrible choices by big, large institutions that don't care about communities of color and like putting the burden of like these um these huge scale environmental negative environmental impact decisions uh, where they where they would end end up ha- feeling the effects of it. Yeah, and I just think that's super important to get into the reporting on this and the media coverage on this because otherwise people might not understand why this is a big deal. You know, like you could see it as like oh it's just one protest over one pipeline. So I think it's really important in the reporting on this to be like, no, 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 here's why it it matters, because it connects to this whole history and these bigger systems. And uh, there's not always space for that or the narrative isn't shaped that way in most media coverage around this because it's a more difficult story to tell, I think, you know, and I think, you know, it's it's trickier to be like, it's not just about this one pipeline. It's about a history of colonialism. You know, I doubt we're going to see that on the front page of newspapers anytime soon but when you talk to the people who were protesting there that's that's what's going on in the scene right like i think you bring up a good point because like if this is even being reported on period right uh like nobody wants to it's 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 already not getting enough coverage uh, on that level and then when it is getting on that coverage like People don't want to really talk about um, like all the historical impact that like led up to this and why it matters in the way that it matters. Uh, there's mm-hmm. just so many layers of, um, I guess, like 
because there's so much work to do when you, when you do report it in such a way um, to get it right and, and to actually tell the full story. And sometimes like that's not a priority. Like um, news outlets will get more clicks if they're reporting about like um, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie breaking up than, <laughs> than like exposing like colonial histories of environmental racism, right? Have, have you seen the thing that's going on been going on on Twitter in the last few days? You've been kind of down in the pits of your MFA program writing away, but have you been following on Twitter people uh, posting things where in their Twitter status it says like, oh my God, I can't believe this is why Brad and Angelina broke up. And then it's actually a link to an article about the refugee crisis or the Standing Rock <laughs> protest or something else that's really important and not getting enough coverage. Um, and people are like, oh my, And but they're phrasing it as this kind of clickbaity thing, like, you'll never believe this about Brangelina, and then you click on it, and it's like a link to discussion of, like, refugee crisis in Syria. Uh, I, I mean, it's so, it's really clever, but it just really reflects, like, what a sad state we're in, in terms of, um, you know, what kind of media, uh, what kind of media we're reporting on, and what we're not reporting on. If you want to read Vivian Underhill's article about this, it's called Fighting for the Future, the Indigenous Water Protectors Leading Standing Rock's Movement Aren't Backing Down. And uh, we'll hopefully keep reporting on Standing Rock uh, as the protest continues. Our next bit of news that we want to talk about is not something that we enjoy talking about, but it's something that we definitely need to amplify and talk about when it does happen, is that another um, police shooting of an unarmed Black person occurred last Friday. Um, his name was Terrence Crutcher, and he was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, it's being reported that his car has stalled um, in the middle of the road after he was returning from his community college class, and um, there's actual video of the shooting, but what happened was on when he was shot and he died on the scene, um, the police, the Tulsa Police Department had released a um, statement saying that the reason why um, he was shot was because he had not complied um, to uh, demands by law enforcement. But then this Monday, um, video was actually released of this, and it was aerial video of, um, of a, a footage of what was happening, and it shows him complying. He had his, his arms up in the air, and um, one officer shot him with uh, a taser, and another officer named Betty Shelby um, shot him with, with her gun, and he died. Um, and the thing about the story for me while I was watching it is, um, uh, this story alone is that there, while the, the there's the footage of the aerial, I think it's police copters, like kind of like keeping track on him, and you can hear the dispatchers making comments about uh, Crutcher as he's walking back to his cars with his hand up. Um, and one of the dispatchers said that he looked like a, a bad guy and that he quote looked like he was on something. Um, and, and it really struck me that like to hear them say this um, on tape to each other and ostensibly to other law enforcement who are also watching and listening in, um, it just it just reinforces this notion that like uh, within the lies of the eyes of law enforcement, like black folks aren't humanized. Like, um, it, just by saying that he looked like a bad dude he, who was on something, it really dehumanized who he was from that, uh, you know, from his perspective, like, perched up in the sky in a helicopter. So I, I can't imagine, like, what this uh, police officer, Betty Shelby, was thinking when she was on the ground with him. You know, I, I think that there's this... Um, you know, often there's this defense of police officers that, like, oh, you, you know, they, they put their lives on the line every day to do their work. Um, but this is a field that they chose to go into. Um, Terrence 
Terrence Crutcher was just trying to get home and his car stalled. Uh, and he also needs to be sh like seen as a full human being um, who isn't uh, always like who, who isn't a bad guy who's on something all the time. Um, and, and so that was like a really heartbreaking um, thing to hear and to see. And not a day later, uh, there was another shooting of um, Keith Lamont Scott in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, witnesses say that he was reading a book. And, uh, and at that time, law enforcement were looking for somebody else and um, they shot and killed him too. Uh, so, like, these are, and both of these men were completely unarmed. Um, both of these men, um, like, the only thing that they were guilty of in the law, in the eyes of law enforcement were being black. Uh, and there's really no, I, I feel like there's really no gray area about their deaths. Like, sometimes there's this notion of, like, well, we need to hear uh, all the facts that come out. Um, but for Terrence Crutcher and for Keith Lamont Scott, like, they don't have time to hear the facts come out, like, they're already dead. Um, and, you know, I was, when I was like, I saw these news stories, they're, they're so fucking heartbreaking and terrible. I, I thought back about, um, it was like a little bit more than two years ago, um, when, during for Mike Brown's death. And like, you know, it, it was just, it was so hor horrifying how they, how they portrayed him, how they said that like, you know, he had um, threatened the police officers and how he, he, which way he was facing, whether his arms were up or not. And like, when, when I heard, like, that dispatcher um, say that, like, Terrence Crutcher is a bad dude who's on something, I immediately thought back about, like, his character characterization of um, Mike Brown and how people thought that, like, he was a, a terrible kid and he was up to no good and he deserved to be shot. Um, I, I think that, like, all this is just, like, coalescing into this this this... this this moment where it's like we can't ignore that this is happening, um, and like I mean I haven't been ignoring, but I feel like for the wider like W I D E R America, this is something that like um, how do we how do we keep continuing to justify these things? You know like and then uh, I mean I also think back about um how we t uh, in our last episode we were talking about Colin Kaepernick's protest. Oh yeah, yeah. uh huh. Yeah, you know like. All of those people are up in arms about him sitting down. Like, where are all those people up in arms about, like, these two black men being shot to death? Yeah, and also there's yeah. been, like, a, there's been one one interesting result of this has been people saying how many people have been shot by police since Colin Kaepernick started his protest. And as of this week, 15 black people have died during encounters with the police since Colin Kaepernick started his protest. So it's been sort of like a, a way to mark, like, time passage. And these events, they can seem so... I feel like for a lot of Americans, these deaths just seem like they happen every day. Like another day, more more shootings by the police, more killings by the police. And it can sort of glaze over you, you know? It's it's both things. It's both like people don't pay enough attention to it. And they happen so often that it seems like this is just normal. This is just how it works, you know? Um, in the in the case of Keith Lamont, it's, it's a really interesting case because the... the the description of what happened from the police and the description of what happened from his family are so wildly different. As, C as CNN was reporting, uh, the family of Keith Lamont said he was just sitting reading a book. The police say he had a gun and he wouldn't drop the gun when the police came up there. And so according to the police, he was armed. According to his family, he was unarmed. But this is another case where it just it makes me wish that we had a recording of what happened, a video recording of what happened so that 
we could know exactly what happened. But then in the cases where there are video recordings of what happened, that didn't necessarily stop the violence or stop the person from getting killed, you know? So in the other case, in Terrence Crutcher's case, there's aerial surveillance footage of what happened. We can see exactly what happened, but that didn't prevent it. And a lot of times, you know, the calls for police reform are about uh, we need more body cameras, we need to film the police. And that is certainly part of the solution for putting this on more Americans' radars and for having this end and for changing, for calling this out as a problem and changing it. But it's obviously not the only part of the solution because while we need cameras to figure out what happened, even when we know exactly what happened, it's not like police are prosecuted for it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like um, the police officer who killed Terrence Crutcher, like she got paid, but she was uh, put on paid administrative leave. You know, like she has she has time to um, to think about what happened. She has time to like replay the scene. Terrence Crutcher does not. You know, he he didn't get the benefit of, of being um, of getting some kind of paid leave to figure the situation out. Um, and, and it's just. It's just so glaring, you know, like um, you, you had mentioned that it, it, this seems like it just it happens every day because I, I think it is happening every it day. It is happening every day. Yeah. You know, some of us have the privilege to not think about it because mm-hmm. we don't live in black bodies. Um, and I think that for black folks, this is um, I, I literally cannot imagine um, the amount of stress that one has to go through to think about how they should live their lives in such a way that they're not threatening that they, they're not perceived as being threatening to law enforcement so that they don't lose their lives. There's such an essential media component to this in terms of tr- even tracking what's going on with the police. Um, the Guardian has this database called The Counted, where people can report shootings by the police and killings by the police. And this year in 2016, it's up to 788 Americans have been killed by the police. And this isn't even a database looking at, like, were these shootings justified? You know, were the was the person unarmed? This is just literally collecting the data of how often is this happening to document the problem so we can try and solve it and try and end it. And that's something that didn't even exist before The Guardian started doing it. You know, why isn't this something that why aren't police shooting something that there's that you know, the government or some other institution here is keeping track of, it's become this newspaper's job. And luckily, it seems like they're doing a good job of it. I imagine that um, government agencies don't want to track this because they don't want to know what the results are. Yeah, it seems (laughs) like, I mean, local agencies track when police officers uh, shoot somebody. And of course, they keep track of when the police kill somebody. But it's not like collected in some central way and analyzed for patterns or looked at systemically of like, how many people are the police shooting across the United States? How frequent is this? What are the patterns we're seeing here? How can we reduce this? That is not happening in a way except on this website that The Guardian built. I mean, I I feel like a a conspiracy theorist, but if all of this is being logged in, by local agencies, it shouldn't be that difficult to compile them into like a national database with information. But when you do compile all this information, then it might show um, how like uh, communities of color are disproportionately affected by law enforcement and being murdered by them. And do we want to know that? And then how do we justify that? Um, how do we talk about that? And do we actually want to reform that? Like, you know, I think that in America, we often... Um, 
talk about creating reform based on data or like we need this evidence so that we can justify doing something else. And in this case, it seems as if um, we don't want the evidence because we don't want true reform. Um, I don't think that's a conspiracy at all. I think that's the way it is. I think yeah, I mean, like, we don't want true reform because black people are being killed. Not, I mean, if, if it was a bunch of, like, young white folks being pulled over because there they're, are, are, if there is a bunch of, like, young white kids who whose cars break down in the middle of the road and they're being shot for no good reason, like, are you for fucking kidding me? Like, police reform would be happening um, in, like, like, white folks would be flooding streets and, like, shutting down police departments, like, um you know, raising riots like they do when their football teams loses or wins. Uh, this is like, this is so unconscionable what's happening. And, and, you know, like when we're talking about with the Standing Rock story, it's like, it's, it's, it's even more unconscionable because of the long history of anti-black racism that this, this country has perpetuated on black folks, you know? And then it's just like, we keep talking about how we, we are theoretically like post-racial or, that like the work is done. The work is not done because people are like literally losing their lives for, for being black. I think the conspiracy you're pointing to here, Amy, has a name and it is white supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's really that's literally I just imagine you <laughs> I imagine you in your new house in Mississippi, like putting up index cards on the wall and like drawing strings between them and being like, Oh my god, it's white supremacy. It was white supremacy all along. <laughs> You know what's weird is um so you know in my MFA class um in in, in my MFA program I have to do this class where uh, we just kind of talk this is like not within my MFA but it's within the grad the English grad school department we just kind of talk about like um literature and and its relation to like theory etc cetera, etc cetera. but there's discussions about like what does it mean to be like a writer of color um uh, within like the MFA structure within publishing and and a few times now in class I've had to be that person it's like oh it's white supremacy and also writers of color can't fix it like you guys have to fix it and I have to say this like in a room full of a lot of white people and it's one of those things that like it really mirrors like the work that I feel like I do with bitch or like outside of bitch but it's, it's like people of color and black folks can talk to each other about this all the time but it really takes like um, the energy of white people to want the change and to put the pressure on because white people are in power. Um, and they're the ones that like put a lot of these laws through and they're the ones that I think can talk to each other to convince them that this is actually really happening and not a, not a, like a, a, a conspiracy within like the black community or communities of color to say like, look, this is disproportionately happening. I was like, white folks have to convince convince other white folks that this is a huge issue and it's a white people problem because it's not like a it, it's a, a black community co- problem it's a community of colors problem because they're the ones that are getting impacted but it's a white people problem because this is happening in our country For, first of all i think you should definitely make a shirt that says it's a white people problem <laughs> <laughs> that would be an awesome shirt uh secondly do you know about the group showing up for racial justice Yes. Yes. Um, okay. Based in Portland, yeah. Showing up for racial justice is a national group for white people to talk about and work on racial justice. And it's a group that I recently joined and I was kind of like, like, is this a good group? Like, it's a led by white people group about racial justice. It could be really dicey or not run very well. But in my experience so far, it's been really focused on like supporting uh, movements by people of color for racial justice and talking to white people about the need for racial justice and all kinds of reforms and changes. So if you're a white person and you're listening right now and you're wondering where to go, 
I recommend showing up for racial justice to uh, get involved talking to other white people about the need for these kind of changes and the reality of white supremacy. So for the last segment of the show, we talk about one thing we watched, one thing we heard, and one thing we read this week. Our watched special edition. Um, <laughs> we have our champion copy editor for the website, Jess Kibler, best copy editor in the world. Thank you, Jess, for saving our butts all the time. Um, watched the show Lady Dynamite on Netflix, and she wrote a review about it for bitchmedia.org for the site. And I just wanted to share a little bit of her take on the show. So here's a little clip from Jess Kibler on Lady Dynamite. Hello, I'm Jess Kibler, and I've been watching the show Lady Dynamite. It's a Netflix comedy starring Maria Bamford that openly talks about mental illness. It's a surrealist fictional version of three periods of Bamford's life. When I first started watching it, the show hit a little too close to home in its depictions of depression and psychiatric hospitals, but since then, I've really connected with it and the ways it uses humor to tackle tough subjects. Laughing about our own struggles is a way to cope. It's a defense mechanism, a salve. It's a chance to regain control when the overwhelming feeling is the total loss of it. That was Jess Kibler talking about the Netflix show Lady Dynamite. I am like three or four episodes into this series and I'm like, don't know what to make of it. And I'm like, ah, what is this show? It's it's pretty kooky. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm glad she wrote about it. Um, Just briefly, my thing I read this week, um, I read this new memoir by the writer Martha Grover. It's called The End of My Career. Martha Grover is a longtime zinester. She runs a zine called Somnambulist that maybe some people have heard about. And this book is just like one of those memoirs that's so honest and vulnerable and raw that you're like, I can't believe you wrote this down. I can't believe you published this. And I'm so glad you did because this is exactly how I feel too. I'm really connecting with it and her stories about dating people who really aren't worth dating. <laughs> it's, called the end of my, it's called The End of My Career by Martha Grover. All right, and I have the music pick. Um, I'm super excited to talk about um, Japanese Breakfast, uh, which is a band led by Michelle Zauner. Zauner, I think that's how you say her name. Um, I really love this uh, new record. It's called Psycho Pomp. And um, Zauner's music is a kind of like a mix of Grimes and Mitski, who both artists who I really, really love. Um, and it's kind of, I would describe it as like indie rock twee. And I wanted to listen to the track called Everybody Wants to Love You. Thanks, Amy. Yay, thanks for listening, guys. Bye. of Backtalk is sponsored by Oregon State University. Earn your German degree online. Explore the German language through an interactive experience online, featuring language proficiency, culture, and literature history, and more. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves, make the world better. Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash German. Thanks for listening to Backtalk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb. From Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener supported feminist nonprofit. If you want to support the show and our work, 
please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. 